Welcome to our third large group of the semester. My name is Nick Brancher. I think I haven't introduced myself yet, but tonight uh, we're continuing on in our series on the book of Exodus uh, that we've called Being Known and Living Free. Last week, uh, if you were with us, we were encouraged from Exodus 2 that God intimately knows his people in the midst of their suffering. We saw how God you know, knows us. This week in Exodus 3, we're going to see how God makes himself known to us, right? Last week we saw how God knows us in the midst of our suffering. This week we're going to kind of figure out how we come to know God. As I was thinking about that reality in this passage this week, I kept returning to the idea of a game changer. You guys know what a game changer is? Uh, Like, you know... uh, What I'm talking about, like when someone or something comes along that basically changes everything that comes after it, like the iPhone in terms of tech, right? Or even the printing press uh, before it completely revolutionized the way that humanity communicates our ability to obtain information and access it. A game changer alters everything about how we live. They don't have to be on a worldwide scale, though, right? Maddie and I have been watching the Olympics this week, as you know. And uh, Jesse Diggins, if y'all know who that is, has quickly become uh, my favorite Olympian, my favorite winter Olympian at least. She is a, on the women's cross-country team. And if you know anything about Jesse, she's very open about an eating disorder that she has. And the way she tells her story is that basically, essentially, uh, she was competing during the day and then, you know, at night she would get done and uh, would experience bulimia, would struggle with bulimia. And her mom one night actually got so bad that her mom uh, came into her room in the middle of the night to check her pulse and it woke her up and it scared her. And she realized that her mom had actually thought that she had just passed away at night in the middle of her sleep. That was a game-changing moment for Jessie when she realized that she really had a problem and that she could die as a result if she didn't get help. She says the way that she tells her story is that essentially the next day checks herself into a therapy program, uh, asks for help called the Emily Project, works on her relationship with food, and now she credits that moment for not only, you know, helping her win a gold medal at the last Olympics, but also for even saving her very life, right? for continuing her existence. And uh, even now, uh, as she races and as she lives, she has a headband where prominently displayed on her headband is the EMILY Project, which is the therapy program that helped her. Uh, That's where most racers, when they do cross-country, that's where they would put a sponsor. She puts that uh, on her head for free because she believes in it, because it's changed her life. That game-changing encounter with her mom, so full of love and concern has altered everything about Jesse's life, even to the way that she looks and how she presents herself to the world. There's no going back for Jesse to the before, right? In Exodus 3 tonight, we're going to witness a game-changing moment in a similar fashion. Uh, In the life of Moses, he's going to meet the living God, and everything that he experienced before will be different, and everything he experiences after will be different based on this interaction. Ultimately, I hope that we're going to see two things about this interaction that will form or inform our own game-changing experience about God. Two things to know about God that will change the game for us just as it did for Moses. And here they are. Uh, You can 
There are actually two uh, game-changing Cs that got uh, got the alliteration going tonight. They're God's configuration and God's character, right? We're going to look at God's configuration and God's character from Exodus 3. So let me read that. This is Exodus 3, 1 through 17. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Moses saw that he had tu- or sorry, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, or to see, God called him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray. O Lord, uh, I simply ask that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's dive into the first of our two game-changing C's about knowing God. First off, God's configuration. Look with me at verses two through three. Let's look at verses two through three to start. Worth noting from the jump, Uh, that we don't entirely know what the deal is with the angel of the Lord language. Uh, This angel or messenger services from time to time in the Old Testament. Most notably, he's pictured in Genesis 22 and Isaiah 63. And each time, uh, this angel of the Lord is so closely related to the Lord himself 
that he's actually identified as the Lord himself. It's used interchangeably. For this reason, some have said that this could be, you know, maybe the pre-incarnate Jesus or the Holy Spirit. And, you know, those are good guesses as to what's going on here. What we do know is that by verse 4, when, you know, the voice speaks out of the bush, it is the Lord who does the speaking. Now, we're told this bush is on fire, but never being consumed, right? No ash, no withering leaves. And I I just want, it ought to go without saying, but I'm going to have to say it. This is weird, right? This is weird. uh, And we're going to, you think like, you're like, well, yeah, of course it's weird. But sometimes I think we have a tendency when we look back, there's uh, something called chronological snobbery. And we tend to think that around the 18th century during the Enlightenment, we figured out science and everything before that, people just thought bushes burned up and they never, you know, they caught fire and they never burned. And like physics, what's that? doesn't matter, right? Just because people didn't like know the Pythagorean theorem yet does not mean that people don't know that bushes burn. It's just worth noting uh, this stuff doesn't happen all the time in the ancient world. They don't just explain everything by magic. They weren't gullible people. People in the ancient world knew how fire worked. Moses knew how fire worked. Uh, and so it obviously catches his eye, right? He notices that it's not actually burning from the fire. And so he's puzzled and he comes over to look at it, right? As I said in verse four, we discover that the bush is God's chosen configuration, right? It's his chosen shape that he's taken on to speak with Moses. Now I say, right, like chosen configuration and like a taken on form or shape because of course God is not literally a fire, right? How many of you guys have lit like a Duraflame log in your house? Like every time you do that, you don't have an encounter with God, right? He is not actually just all fire, right? Uh, This is how he has chosen to appear to Moses in this one circumstance because he doesn't have a physical form. It's worth asking why God chose this theophany, right? Theophany is like a fancy, you know, theological jargon for when God appears in some sort of a form, why does God choose this? What, what does it communicate about God that he chose to reveal himself as a fire? Obviously, it could be nothing, right? He's got to have some sort of a sign so Moses doesn't think he's just hearing voices, right? If, you, if a voice just comes out of nowhere and nothing, nothing weird is happening, you might think you're just going crazy, right? So he gives him some sort of a sign. could be nothing. But when viewed in light of the rest of the Old Testament, the fire seems pretty intentional, Right? In Genesis 15, God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch to Abraham. Later in Exodus 19, after God's people are rescued, God appears to them at Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments and to enter into a covenant promised relationship like a marriage with his people. And uh, that scene is described from verse 18 as this. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Over and over again, especially in the early parts of the Old Testament, God chooses to reveal himself as a fire. Over and over again. There's something to that. Why does God keep showing up as a fire? Well, I can think of two reasons, and uh, they're not just coming off the top of my dam. I'll show it from the text in a second. But two reasons, if you just think about fire, in and of itself. Like, what do you know about fire? The first thing I would say is that fire is fascinating, right? You you know how I know that fire is fascinating? Because if you have a fire, right, and you're all sitting around it, what does everybody instinctually do? You just stare. You just look at it. 
You know, even if you could, I mean, and once you stare at that, you can talk about anything. You know what I mean? Like you, you, some, some guy who will never like, who's just macho, like never talks to you or whatever. You get a fire in front of him and he's like, well, you know, one time my dad like was really rough with me on the, when I was doing my homework and he didn't understand and I didn't understand. Like people will just tell, they'll bear their souls to you if you can get them to just look at a fire. Because it's so fascinating. It's so interesting. You can sit in front of it and watch it for hours. It's the only thing that I know of on Netflix that they literally put in front of you and it, there's no dialogue or scenes. It's literally just that. And they're like, it's like one of their most watched videos. You know what I mean? Like fire is, fire is fascinating. Here's the other thing we know about fire. It's also terribly frightening, right? You can't really control it. You, you can, yes, you can, you know, if, if you want a log to catch fire, you can put a different log. You can control the things around a fire, but you can't pick it up and, like, make it do what you want it to do, right? Fire is uncontrollable. Look at me at verses 5 through 6, right? What do we know about fire? We know that this is exactly how Moses responds to it. M- Moses is simultaneously told, in verse 5, not to go near, right? Don't come near to God as the burning bush, right? Meaning that on some level he wants to go, right? If you, you don't tell somebody stop if they aren't coming, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you don't, uh, you don't tell somebody like, don't come closer if they aren't actually trying to come closer yet. Right. In verse six, he also impulsively hides his face in terror. You can kind of see it. It's like, I'm just trying to get a little closer, you know, like he, he is simultaneously terrified by this thing. Can't even look at it. And yet at the same time, wants to come nearer to it. Uh, he, you know, he's encountering God and he is both, right, enticed and terrified, attracted and yet avoidant. This is God, friends. He's endlessly fascinating, endlessly beautiful, and yet also so good and so pure that Moses immediately comes into the, the reality that I am not like this being, <laughs> Right when he when he sees God, he is so drawn into his perfection and his beauty and his goodness, just like you would a fire. Right, there's so much to know about him, so much to enjoy about him: his compassion, his goodness, his graciousness, all the attributes that we know, all the things that he does throughout his word, his love for people. He's so enchanting, and yet, right, all those good attributes, all that perfection is just obvious about how Moses comes to him unclean. I mean, the previous chapter, he just killed a guy, right? If anything, he probably thinks like, well, I'm cooked. This is the end, you know? Uh, This is how I go. This is God, friends. He's fascinating and beautiful, but also scary because he's not like us. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I quoted a different passage last week, but there's this other scene in uh, the second book, where the Pevensi children, if you know the book, it's these, these kids that get swept up into this magical land called Narnia. They're being hunted by an evil white witch who wants to kill all of them. Their lives are in grave peril, but just as they're you know, in this you know, grave peril, these beavers that can talk, uh, again, magical land, remember, uh, they come to them and they keep telling them that, you know, don't worry, Aslan can protect them. Aslan can protect them. They're going to get them to Aslan. And then suddenly it dawns on one of the children, Susan, that Aslan, she thinks it's a guy, but actually it's a lion. 
They start talking about his claws and things. And she goes, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> claws? <laughs> Lewis records it like this. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Uh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Uh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, right? She's like, yeah, you will. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I tell you. The point Lewis is making is the same we see in this passage. God, like a fire, is not safe. You can't control him. You can't manipulate him. You can't bargain with him. But he is good. As Mr. Tumnus will say later, he's not a tame lion. right? He doesn't do your bidding. Yes, he is the one who can save them from the witch. He's the one in control. He's good. He's perfect. He's who they want to meet. It's who they're looking for. And yet... There's this reality that when they find him, he's not going to just do whatever they ask, right? They have to, they'll be at his mercy. We'll get to that goodness and that mercy in a moment, but it's worth asking at this point, right? Do you know that God is not a tame lion, right? In what ways do you, do you treat God kind of like he's a tame lion? That he's not really the fire that he claims to be. Right? Do, you, do you think that he, uh, he can be controlled? Right? Do you uh, treat him as a cosmic vending machine? Like every time that you need something, like, hey, God, can you help me with this paper? Hey, uh, you know, my roommate and I aren't getting along. Will you help me with this? Hey. And like all you ever do is just like reach up and like pull the lever of God's grace and just expect him to dispense it upon you. Right? Do you think you can just make demands of him all the time? Do you think of him as a, a gentle old grandpa in the sky that just wants to tell you, you know, that he's proud of you all the time, right? Uh, the truth is that he has moral absolutes, that this God comes as a fire that, uh, you know, cannot be tamed. He doesn't, he doesn't ask you, is it okay for me to tell you what to do with your body? He doesn't ask you, is it okay if, if I tell you how to live? He, he demands everything. Like fire, right? You don't, t- you, you don't tell it where to go. It goes where it, where it wants, right? Yeah, you can try to manipulate in things, but the truth is, right, if we've ever seen, if you know anything about wildfires, for instance, right, you, there's, a, there's a point at which you, you just try to get out of the way, right? This is, this is God. He's not, just, he's not just your cheerleader. He is pure and undefiled, Right? The truth is, when we also think about fires, whatever it comes into contact with, especially if it's hot enough, right, it doesn't change. The thing that it touches changes. Right? If you think about fire, right, if you uh, melt iron ore or anything else, you're, if you've ever had any jewelry, if you put it in a fire hot enough, what it will do is it will actually melt out any impurities and leave behind like pure and solid gold. God, when he touches things, when he moves into things, he doesn't, he doesn't bend to it. It bends to him. Right? All of life bends to God. And the truth is that that means that like, God's heightened moral standards are more than we can actually imagine. They're more than Moses can bear for a reason. Right? 
He is so generous that it will, that if you really understood who God is, you can't understand him without also knowing that you are pretty greedy, right? That you live in the West and that you have more than most and that you don't give it away, right? You can't understand God. You can't actually have a, have a, a meeting with him without understanding that he's compassionate. You know what? That'll let you know that you're pretty judgmental, <laughs> that you tend to be lacking in compassion to other people. Sure, you're compassionate with yourself, but other people don't get your forgiveness, right? When you see his forgiveness, when you see his peace, when you know that he thrives and, and delivers real and total complete peace on earth, you're going to be aware of the fact that you grumble and complain and gossip and talk about other people and cut them down, right? Moses is, is coming face to face with the, the, the moral perfection of the world, of, of God, right? The, most, the highest thing he can think of. And, the, and he is melting down, not able to look, taking off his shoes, doing everything he can to not be burned up in the process, he knows that the, even just, you know, the patience of God make, makes him aware of like his own impatience. To sum up what I'm trying to say, it's this. If you have never felt the weight of your sin, if you think like sin's not a thing, uh, that, um, that uh, if you've been a Christian or you've never, you're not a Christian, it doesn't matter. If you have never thought to yourself, like, I don't really measure up, uh, I will say that part of the reason that you are allowed that illusion is that you have not come into contact with this God. Where the truth is, everybody who meets everybody who meets him, everybody who meets Jesus in the New Testament too, right? They come to him and they realize, like, you aren't a tame lion, right? That you are on your own team, that you are not safe, <laughs> and yet you are you are good. You care about everybody no one else cares about. You love everybody that no one else loves. You are constantly moving toward the outsider and the exposed and the, and the, the lesser of these. He is the ultimate source of all love and purity and goodness in the world. And that should make us aware that we honestly do not deserve him. Moses is aware of this and falls down, covering his face, knowing the truth. But it's not just God's configuration, right? It's not just that uh, God has taken the shape of a fire that signals to Moses who he is. God also reveals his character. Let's look at that second point, God's character. Look with me at verses 13 through 14. Verses 13 through 14. Here Moses does something awfully relatable, I would say. Uh, After objecting to being chosen, and we'll cover Moses' insecurity next week. Uh, There's a whole chapter about it. Uh, He asks God, who he's supposed to say sent him, right? Who do you say, who am I supposed to say sent me? Some things never change, you know. Now it's, you know, what name do I need to drop to get into the frat party? Uh, For Moses, it's, you know, what name do I need to give him so they don't think I'm insane, you know? Because he's going to kind of, like, I spoke to a burning bush and you got to trust me. He told me that we're going to get out of, we're going to get out of Egypt, right? Moses uh, when he comes talking about a burning bush and a voice that he heard and all this stuff, he needs something to prove his story. And God gives him the divine name, Yahweh, right? Every time that you see in the, the New Testament, every time you see like Lord or in the Old Testament, Lord in all capitals, it's this name, it's Yahweh. There's a whole reason why we don't say Yahweh anymore. It's mostly because uh, in the Midrash uh, over like Assyrian and Babylonian rule, when Jews were exiled out of Egypt, 
or sorry, out of Israel. Essentially, there came the idea, especially with the Assyrian gods, that when you say a deity's name, you control that deity. And so there rose up the superstition that you can't say God's name or else he'll like come out in power and glory and vengeance and all this stuff. So they stopped saying it. They just said, Lord, whenever they would get to the divine name. And over time, it just got to be practiced that they didn't even write the name out. And you would say Lord instead. Um, we shouldn't do that. There's no indication that God doesn't want us to know his name. In fact, he tells it to us here. Uh, so occasionally you'll hear me using it. Um, but right, so the divine name Yahweh is what he says. And uh, I, I got to say, like now today, names don't mean very much, right? Like some of you might have names where your parents said that they named you something because of somebody in their family that meant something, or maybe you have a biblical name or something like that. You might have a name that means something. My dad's name was Kevin Ferneld, and my mom's name was Francis Martella. And so I got the name Nicholas Bratcher because it was the most vanilla names they could possibly think of. They were like, we're not going to do that to our son. You're going to be Nicholas Andrew. And my uh, sister is Tabitha Michelle. She got a little bit spicier name than I did. Uh, but like still like pretty, you know what I mean? Like Michelle and T- like these are like down the middle, right? They mean nothing. It was just a nice name they thought well, I wouldn't hate. But as Dr. Michael Williams in his book, Far As the Curse is Found, he describes it. In ancient Israel, people attached great importance to names. A name said something about the person who bore it. It captured something of that person's status, reputation, and character. For Israel, the name by which God identifies himself is quite important. While God throughout the Old Testament reveals his character to Israel in a number of ways, this divine disclosure of the name Yahweh in order that Moses can call upon him is one of his most significant. So significant, right? I would argue that it ought to curry the favor of the Israelites just in saying it, right? When you go there and you talk about the burning bush, just tell them that Yahweh sent you. Now, what does God reveal about his name, uh, about his character via his name? Look at again at verse 14. What is God revealing about his character via his name? Yahweh, God's revealed name, it's a play on the Hebrew verb to be, right? Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means, to be I am who I am, even how to translate that. For most of the Middle Ages, especially in the writings of Thomas Aquinas and his Summa Theologica, this, be, this name essentially just became an argument of philosophy for God's self-existence, his immutability, meaning like his unchangeability and his perpetual existence, that God is eternal, Unlike other things, unlike other gods that are not, right? All these fake gods in Egypt, God truly is. But can I, I'll say this, can I submit to you that this would be a very strange time to like drop a philosophy lesson on Moses, right? He like comes out of the bush and he's like, who do I, who am I going to tell them sent me? And he's like the self-existent God, you know, it's like, that's not a, it's like, all right, I'll tell them that you, you know, exist, you know, like that's not a, it's pro- I don't think that that's mostly what is being communicated. Uh, in fact, if we look at the context uh, of what's happening here, I think we get a little bit of a clue of what God means by his name. Uh, consider the number of times that God rehearses who he is in relation to, right, hear that, who he is in relation to his people in this brief passage, Right? Three times God identifies himself as the God of your fathers, Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. 
and of Jacob. Once in verse 6 when he first speaks to Moses, a second time in verse 15 when Moses is instructed to tell the people about himself, and then again in verse 16 when he's also instructed to tell the elders about himself. Right In light of the context, when God says to tell the people that this God of their fathers has sent him, right? even uh, you know, when Moses asks God in verse 13 about his name, right? he identifies God as the God of his fathers. In light of that context, when Moses asks, who do I tell the, the people that the God of their fathers, like, what is his name? His name is not just I am as a proclamation of his existence. It's that he is the same God as he is to those fathers, right? Not was, <laughs> right? That he is the same God even then. Uh, another hint that the Old Testament believes in an afterlife. One commentator uh, I read so, uh, went so far as to translate God's re- response in verse, t- sorry, verse 14 as, I am to you as I am to them. Right? I am to you as I am to them. Not just I am, I am, but I am to you as I am to them. God's not an abstract theory in his character. He's not a philosophy. He's not a set of ethics or even a set of attributes. He's not some sort of thing you can navigate. He's not a maze. Right? He's a God who is there. What he's saying is he's a God who has been there and will be there and is here and will continually be ising here for all eternity. Right? He is present, always present with his people, for his people. It's no surprise, right? Uh, the next line after uh, they find out that Aslan's not tamed, he's not good, Beaver gives them that, you know, that's, um, you know, Get ready to meet Aslan. He's terrible, right? The next line out of Peter's mouth is this. I'm longing to see him. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point, right? Yes, God is, you know, terrifying. And yes, he is somebody else. And yes, he is morally good in a way that we are not. But, right, what God is revealing here is the same truth that he'll ultimately reveal in Jesus Christ, that he is with his people that he identifies with them, that he has made a way for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's making a way right now for Moses and his people. He's promising them a promised land where they can be away from the suffering and the pain that they've only known. And he's saying, I will be, I am and I will be always with you. And ultimately that means like even Jesus is a fulfillment of this divine name. That as Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf, Bridging that gap, right? The fact that God is both holy and with us ought to mean that we should be terrified and yet we're not because Jesus made a way for that to happen, right? That he uh, has, has come and been with us in the flesh, took on flesh, went to the cross, died in our stead, lived the life we couldn't live, and now gave us his righteousness on the cross and we uh, give him our sin and he took it up for it. Here's what this means to you, right? Uh, we'll ask some uh, pointed questions in a moment in our discussion questions, but I just want to make uh, a couple, you know, closing points. Yes, there's a time element and a present element in this, right? Like a lot of times when we make it the philosophy thing where we say like God's name is I am, we want to say that that's some sort of self-existence reference. I'd say, yes, it means that God has always been and always will be. And yes, it means that God is everywhere, right? That he is and 
in, li in a linear time fashion, but also is in a physical space fashion. He always is, right? But here's the thing. It's not as abstract as like a philosophical idea. It's that God is in your story. That God longs to be in your life. Longs to meet you where you are, right? That you can't escape him. That I know that, you know, some of you guys in here, I know that you're like, I don't think, I mean, I see people like they post on Instagram and like God seems to talk to them or they go to, you know, uh, not, to, not to pick on anybody here, but like they go to the lake and like God talks to them. He doesn't talk to me. Um, love you if that's, uh, you can go to the lake and hear God. That's great. Um, but like he doesn't, he doesn't ever do that with me, right? Sorry, Mikhail, I'm not trying to call you out. Um, but like he doesn't ever do that with me. Why doesn't he ever talk to me like that? Why isn't he with me like that, right? What God's name here, what, what God is trying to, to help us see if we can have an encounter with him, if you know him, if you, can, if you can see him, if you can meet him, you would know he's with you. That he's with you, that he is so with you, in fact, that he'll go to bat for you against that, that father, against the, the, all the purity and things that should absolutely judge you. Right? against the righteousness and the justice that God should seek for all the wrong things that you've done, he will, he will cast those away and run toward you. Right? That it's, it's not an abstract that, idea that he is there, but it's that you can't escape him because he loves you, because he wants desperately to know you and to be known by you. The God you should be afraid of, he's committed to your redemption. Right? He's not safe but he's good. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I do.